public policy should promote learning about generative AI. I'm Eric Wilson, managing partner of Startup Caucus, the home of campaign tech innovation on the right. Welcome to the Business of Politics show. On this podcast, you're joining in on a conversation with entrepreneurs, operatives, and experts who make professional politics happen. Our guest today is Scott Brennan, head of online expression policy at the University of North Carolina's Center on Technology Policy. He and his colleagues recently published a set of policy frameworks for political ads in the age of artificial intelligence. You can read that report in our show notes. We discuss the current state of AI in political ads, what should be done about it, and recommendations for protecting voters from the potential harms of AI in political ads. Scott, as a part of your research for these recommendations, you looked at how AI is currently being used in political advertising. So what did you find? Yeah, so the truth is we don't actually have that many great known examples of generative AI being used in political ads in campaigns. Now, this is, I think, very likely to change as the campaign really heats up. Um, And I think part of that is campaigns might not be using it that much, but also it might be that it's just hard to identify Uh, especially given the ways that we've seen it start to begin to be used, right? It's, it's, it, sometimes it just looks so good (laughs) that we can't even identify when when it is being used. But in the report, we do look back, kind of review those examples that we do have that have been identified and try to identify some like big picture trends in how campaigns seem to be using these tools. And we, we come up with three kind of categories, rough categories, publicity, alteration, and fabrication. So publicity is where we saw these examples, a couple examples where the fact that it is that an ad contains AI generated imagery is really front and center. And it's and it's part of the ad. It's part of, you know, the effort to kind of it's like the gimmick to get people to write about the ad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the best example of this was that RNC ad that came out in the early part of the spring that was used, you know, these tools to produce imagery about what the country might look like under a second term of a Biden presidency. The second category, alteration, includes kind of subtle changes to imagery in ads. And the best example of this is there's a DeSantis campaign ad where it turns out the campaign use these tools to like add in jets. <laughs> the flyover, uh, to this, yeah. This, this image of him. Yeah, like this, the flyover, uh, I guess to make him look more um, powerful or something. Um, you know, that only came out because of some great journalistic work, like actually took the time to compare the the shot in the campaign ad to the original video. Um, but, you know, I think this is probably how, you know, generally I may be used most uh, moving forward. These these kind of small, just like touch-ups to video or kind of small alterations. And then finally, we have fabrication, and that's probably what gets the most discussion. And that's where we see generative AI being used to completely fabricate something that did not exist. So the best example of this is, again, from the DeSantis campaign, where there was an ad that included these images of Trump and Fauci hugging they were these still images that were kind of set within a collage that did not happen. And presumably they used one of these generative AI image generators. 
You know, this is something that I talk about a lot. Everyone's bragging about how they're using AI. So we, we haven't really had many opportunities where someone tries to sneak it in to give us their version of fabrication or something like that. But I think you're right. We'll see that happen. And then there's a lot of discussion among practitioners of where do you draw the line? So for example, we airbrush candidates photos all the time. Is that different than putting the candidate in a different setting? That's a great point that most of the focus you know, in the discussion about generative AI and political ads has, has focused on these concerns about producing deceptive imagery, but not the like most, what will probably be the most common uses when, you know, from are saying, but it may actually be kind of helpful for some campaigns to just have cheaper ways of making better looking ads while modifying things that really don't have anything to do with real substance of the claims being made. And so it was important to us in, in the report to at least sort of grapple with not only the potential harms of these tools in political ads, but also, you know, some of the benefits as well. Yeah. And so given that we can count the examples of AI being used by campaigns on on our hands and that people are detecting these, is the moral panic about AI in political campaigning being overblown? That's a great question. So the point of the report was, you know, we tried to be really systematic in identifying the potential harms that are being discussed regarding generative AI and political ads. And then to assess those harms through the existing empirical academic literature, and then to discuss and target interventions that address those harms accordingly. And what we found is that some of the harms that are commonly discussed are probably been a bit overstated, while others, though, have been understated and likely need more attention, right? So the harms around authenticity or scale that generative AI will make deceptive imagery that's far more authentic seeming or will produce far more content that will then lead to much larger effect on candidate choice, likely those have been somewhat overstated. But risks to down-ballot races or risks concerning the way that these tools might amplify or replicate some of the biases that we know are built into these generative AI tools, I think those those sorts of harms have really sort of been under-considered. It's more of like, we're less worried about the Terminator and we're more worried about disinformation, misinformation that gets spread on social media platforms, just getting plussed up. We've seen the effects of that going back several campaigns now. And and so th- that's really where we're, we're trying to focus our attention. Well, yeah, I mean, um, certainly the concerns around misinformation, disinformation, I mean, that that is the sort of core concern that most people have about generative AI and political ads, right? That like campaigns or, or other advertisers will use these tools to create real seeming imagery that will have a major effect on the election that will convince people to 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 support a candidate they would not otherwise support that would convince them to go out and vote or not, to not vote to give money you know or to take either to to believe something they wouldn't believe or to ta- or really to take some action that they wouldn't otherwise do now you know ultimately when looking at the quite large literature on both the effectiveness of political advertisements in campaigns and on the effects that misinformation, especially sort of like single one-off pieces of misinformation can have. Truthfully, much of the more recent research is kind of suggesting that these things don't really have as much impact as they are often assumed to have. 
So for political ads, I think if anything, there's a bit clearer evidence that political ads rarely have strong effect on who people support. There's this one, this one great sort of uh, meta-analysis of I think it was 49 um, uh, uh, stu- empirical studies of the effect of political communication, and it said that there's this quote that we pulled out in the report. It's the best estimate of the effects of campaign contact and advertising on Americans' candidate choices in general elections is zero. <laughs> That's not to say that political ads don't have important impact or important effects in elections, right? They can still influence behaviors, turnout, donations, signing up for emails, things like that. But, you know, I think we have to kind of grapple the fact that ads really (laughs) don't have a huge effect on who people vote for. And that means that these concerns about generative AI changing the candidate that someone supports, it's probably not so likely. In your report, you do outline kind of four categories of how AI might be used to affect the, shall we call it the effectiveness of political advertising. Can you run us through those? Yeah, absolutely. So I said like, you know, the point here was to, to really systematically sort of assess the claims being made about the the horror, the potential harms of of, of the, these technologies and political ads, and so we, you know, we kind of comb through, you know, uh, uh, you know, not not only academic studies, but but just sort of like popular discussion, op eds, editorials, and tried to just sort of synthesize the 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 potential harms, um, and, and we came up with these four uh, categories of harms. They are scale. The that is the the concern that. Um, uh, these new generative AI-based tools will make it easier or cheaper for advertisers to create false content. Um, and then, of course, that that increase in scale will will have effects that concern authenticity, right? The concern that these tools will allow bad actors to create more you know, realistic, deceptive ads. Personalization, the concern that that these tools will allow advertisers to sort of to more easily kind of create personalized content. Right. We, you know, digital ads in particular, right, we know are, are, of course, like the whole idea is them being targeted to, to, to small segments. But here we have these tools that will make it easier to create different versions of ads that are really, uh, um, th- you know, that, that, that are really t- uh, keyed to particular segments. And then finally, bias. And, you know, to, to be honest, I think this is the category that has received the least amount of attention overall. But we're starting to see some people express some concern, and that is that, you know, these as campaigns or advertisers begin to use these models, you know, they might, you know, that we know have these sort of built-in biases, race, gender, identity, sexuality, nationality, that those are going to be kind of replicated or brought into political ads in different ways. So these are the four sort of harms that that we identified kind of being discussed out there in the world. And then we look to the academic literature to sort of make sense of which of these harms, you know, how are these, you know, what can we say about the the empirical basis for these harms? So give us a quick rundown of, of what, if anything, that the, the tech platforms and regulatory agencies are doing currently about AI in, in political ads. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we're seeing a lot of discussion by the tech platforms, by the governments, you know, at different levels. The big ad platforms, particularly Google and Meta, have already announced that they're going to start requiring disclosures on generative AI containing ads for the 2024, you know, US presidential election. And I don't quite remember what date that those are going to start. I know that Google made this announcement some time ago, but said it wouldn't start until after the 2023 elections. Um, I think kind of also notably, a lot of the generative AI platforms have policies in place that prohibit the use of those tools to create deceptive content, especially for elections. So if you go into ChatGPT or Dolly 2 and try to ask it to create kind of uh, uh, this sort of deceptive political content, you'll often get a notice that says this is against our terms of service. Um, I will say, though, there was a, um, a big Washington Post investigation some months ago that found that even after ChatGPT had those sort of restrictions in place, they were still able to get around them quite easily. Yeah, I, I don't know anyone who has been yeah. stopped by that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And then, and then, of course, there are some that don't seem to have you know re- restrictions at all. And there's, of course, open source models. Despite the policies in place, there's going to still be ways to use these tools for political uh, campaigns. Yeah. And one of the things that I found really interesting about Meta's policy is, is there does seem to be a little bit of a nuance there, which I appreciate, which is around they're not interested in the, did you clean up the audio on this using AI? Did you color correct using AI. It's was this materially changed. And so I think that's a really important caveat and one that we talk about as practitioners. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other kind of big piece of that is to really grapple with what is really different about deceptive content created through generative AI versus deceptive content created through Photoshop or uh, through, I mean, so, you know, in my, in my other life, you know, I was an academic researcher and, and I did a lot of work on misinformation. I remember studying COVID misinformation. I, I did this piece on on visual disinformation for COVID, and the data set that we were analyzing. I don't think we saw any examples of wholly created deceptive imagery. It was all crude use of Photoshop or pieces of content that were one thing but were claimed to be something else. Right. And yep. and um, and so I think we really have to sort of grapple with like what is really unique here, and if we're concerned about generative AI produced deceptive content, shouldn't we also be concerned about other tools or ways of creating that deceptive content? You're listening to the Business of Politics show. I'm speaking with Scott Brennan from the UNC Center on Technology Policy. Now, Scott, I want to dig into your recommendations. You've got 10, uh, but give us the high-level summary of what should be done about AI and political ads and who should be doing it. Yeah, we found a lot of sort of unanswered or open questions. And so, you know, we give the sort of best read of the literature that, that we have now. That doesn't mean that that won't kind of change as we move forward. Now, that sort of idea about needing to have additional sort of understanding is one of the key sort of principles that anchors our 10 recommendations. So we have 10 recommendations and, we, and they're really split into two categories. The first is public policy should promote learning about generative AI. And I, I guess I should say these recommendations are just for policymakers. They're not for platforms addressing these content and they're not for campaigns um, and how they should they should try to navigate this you know, evolving landscape. So two categories, promoting learning about generative AI. And then second, 
public policy should target the electoral harms rather than the technologies themselves. Yeah, and I think I—I I, I mean that—that that I think is a really important distinction, right? Because anytime you try and get policymakers trying to write regulations around tech, by the time they agree on it, the tech has changed. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, you know, and that seems especially important here, right? Where, um, yeah, it's all changing so fast, uh, even faster, right? Than than uh, than other other kind of technologies of the past, you know, decade or so. Yeah, one of the examples of those electoral harms that you you talk about, just to give our listeners example, is voter suppression. So if you are using AI-generated content to discourage or prevent people from voting, that is clearly wrong. It's wrong whether you use AI or not, but that is a, an example of the electoral harm, not the tech. Well, exactly, right? Like, what is the thing that we should really care about? And that is the harm, right? And that is, in this case, that is voter suppression. And this this is actually something that we've written about before and kind of shocked me when I first kind of learned this several several years ago. Some of the states do have prohibitions, but we don't have a federal law outlying this. You know, so rather than starting with the questions about generative AI, one good place to start is passing federal prohibition on, on voter suppression. Right. So, Scott, we alluded to this earlier. But I'm curious at, at more examples of how we can mitigate the unintended consequences of these proposals uh, that might make it harder for legitimate campaign uses of AI. One of the examples that I, I go to all the time when people ask me about this actually comes from India. So India has lots of different uh, regional languages. Um, and so candidates running there or running nationally um, obviously, don't speak all of those those languages, but AI can be used to make sure that voters are hearing the candidate in their own language. And, and then, then we have more recent examples here stateside of a candidate who's sort of not as well resourced, can't afford the the volunteer operation, is using a AI caller to contact voters. So, how do we save those? use cases, which I think most people recognize as like, okay, this is an improvement without throwing out the, I guess, the baby with the bathwater on, on making sure that we have boundaries on AI. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and as I said before, I mean, I think that is the idea that really animates the second kind of category of our recommendations, right, about promoting learning. Like that should be one of the key goals of public policy in these areas. How can we learn more? Like recognizing that this is all so new and there are certainly things to be worried about here, but there also are some real potential benefits of these technologies. So how can public policy help us understand better what are the impacts of, of these sort of tools and political ads? And so, so some of the things that we call for are like, include, you know, governments, Funding empirical studies. I mean, it it it's it, uh, you know we have you know we we have great ways right for the federal government through through yeah. through agencies <laughs> to to give some money to like better understand uh, understand this and and um, we we actually lay out kind of very specific kind of holes in the existing literature to hopefully kind of direct future research here. It's a novel idea that we would get information to make decisions rather than legislating from a position of panic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and this is also ties into something else that that uh, Matt Peralt, uh, who's the director of, of our center, um, and I have, have written about, and we actually have a piece coming out in, in uh, Brookings on on this. Uh, but, but this idea of, you know, this is a great place for, for uh, policy experiments, 
Um, you know, in, in, in that other piece, we, we kind of talk about, um, you know, the real, this benefit of policymakers kind of approaching the idea of policymaking from this place of curiosity, right? Rather than certainty to recognize that often we have imperfect information um, and we're going to, right? That, that like policy is really hard and often there are these unintended consequences. So can we create ways of testing out new policies before we're committed to them forever, you know? Um, and, 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 you know, so there are these ways like sandboxes or policy experiments, you know, or even just these, these smaller kind of, you know, uh, provisions that could be attached to bills that, you know, sunset laws or that require data sharing, right? So, you know, um, so for example, you know, we're starting to see um, some states uh, pass restrictions or requirements around generative AI and politicalized. So Minnesota, Michigan, I think Wisconsin, uh, this past year instituted some new, uh, new, new rules. Uh, Michigan, I think is, is going to start requiring disclaimers. That's a great opportunity. Like whatever you think about the law, there's, there is a great opportunity there, right? To <laughs> yeah, collect, let's, let's test that. Yeah, exactly. To like collect some data about it. Um, See how it goes, right? So that um, you know, in future elections, we can see like, did these disclaimers have any sort of material effect, good or bad, right? Like, there are, you know, um, so 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 I think there's there's really opportunity for policymakers to just build some of these, you know, t- tools into you know to allow us to like better understand the impact these that these policies can have. Well, Scott, before we wrap up, I want to pull you out of your ivory tower of academia. <laughs> And pretend you're you're in our listeners' shoes. You're you're in the front lines of a campaign. Um, you know there are obviously concerns that we we don't know how how AI uh, could be used as as an attack vector against campaigns. What are any any ideas or tips for how someone could could protect themselves or protect their campaign um, from from these harms while we're waiting on on public policy to catch up. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a that's a really hard one. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I mean, you know, I'm uh, I'm certainly <laughs> not a campaign practitioner. But um so, you know, I think as I said a few minutes ago, one of the key harms that we think has has been sort of under acknowledged is around is around bias. And the way that the biases that are you know that 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 we know that these models have might be brought into political ad content um, un- unintentionally, right? So, uh, you know, so I guess I would just say I recommend that, like, as you know, campaigns or advertisers begin to integrate these tools in different ways and to experiment with how you know they can use them, to just be, be very sort of mindful that. Um, you know, when you ask it to generate, uh, you know, when you ask a model to like generate a whatever boilerplate picture of a constituent or, you know, to, right. to, to create kind of boilerplate language that like should, you know, really give it, give it some some deep kind of consideration about what sort of biases are being kind of brought through. And I, I think the other side is, um, you know, one of our recommendations actually kind of plays on the very famous Steve Bannon quote about uh, his general sort of approach, you know, just to, you know, flood the zone with shit, forgive my language. And, <laughs> and the idea was, well, given that it seems that these technologies might have more impact on down ballot races at the local or state level where there's just less 
advertising, there's less communication, there's less attention, there's less oversight. And so a single ad, right, or campaign might have more potential impact. The idea is, can local election officials, you know, flood the zone with good content? And I think there's a role for candidates at the local and state election to, you know, just be very open to working with local campaign officials to help put out good factual content, and especially as it concerns just the basics about voting dates or voting processes. Well, my thanks to Scott Brennan for a great conversation. You can read his report at the link in our show notes, and there's more information about the University of North Carolina's Center on Technology Policy. If this episode made you a little bit smarter, gave you some ideas about how to think about AI and its use in political advertising. All we ask is that you share it with a friend or colleague. You look smarter in the process. More people learn about the show. It's a win-win all around. Remember to subscribe to the Business of Politics show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. And you can also get email updates, see past episodes at our website, businessofpoliticspodcast.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Business of Politics show is produced by Advocacy Content Kitchen, a media production studio.